Do feel free to uh, keep Lamentations 1 uh, open. Uh, on the Church Bibles, it's page 823. So, June, June 587 BC. Jerusalem has held out against a vastly superior Babylonian army for more than two years. And she is now surrounded and all the food is gone. King Nebuchadnezzar has come to punish Jerusalem's King Zedekiah for his betrayal. And Nebuchadnezzar is in no hurry. He will wait until he can see this through. And then one night, the Babylonians finally break through the city wall and it's all over. No one stands to fight they all flee into the night. Through the gates near the king's garden, they run out into the night. And the people of Jerusalem never, ever have a chance. The Babylonians catch up with them down the mountain on the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah the king is captured along with his sons. You know how this goes. They murder his sons in front of him. Then they gouge out Zedekiah's eyes and they bind him and they take him away they're just getting started the Babylonians then loot the temple in Jerusalem of all its treasures then they torch the temple along with the king's palace and all the houses in Jerusalem and then finally they rip down the city walls they execute the city's top officials Babylonians do what they want with the people. Some are dead. Some wish they were dead. Many are led away as slaves. A few are left behind. Jerusalem, the glorious city of kings David and Solomon, lies in ruins. The temple, epicenter of hope and glory, and peace is now an empty, burnt-out shell. God's promises to his people and their, their dreams of freedom and joy are literally shattered into oblivion. This is Lamentations chapter 1. Now we hear the anguish of all who are left. We may not want to listen. We may not agree with some of their conclusions. We may be shocked by their impertinence, but we will listen nonetheless. As we heard in that wonderful Bible reading, we have one character in Lamentations 1 who is seen from two different angles. The character is the city of Jerusalem. She is a weeping widow, inconsolable in her grief. We watch her, destitute, abandoned, craving our pity and our attention. And we also hear her speak. We hear her describe her own destitution. In Israel's history, as you may know, the covenant relationship between God and his people Israel had often been portrayed 
as an exclusive and loving marriage. Think of the prophets Hosea and Jeremiah. The image is used positively. God loves the people of Israel like the best, loving, most faithful husband. The image is also used negatively. We, as the people of Israel, have been faithless. We have been adulterous. We have run after other lovers. And choosing this image of a widow is a really stark way of reminding us of all of the history that there has been between God and Israel. But to Jerusalem, it now feels like God has completely abandoned her. It's like God is dead and she is near death herself. In chapter 1, we hear the immediate causes of Jerusalem's anguish. We, she talks about the wounds that she notices first as she crawls out of the rubble. And the first one you can see in verse 1, she simply says, we simply hear how deserted lies the city once so full of people. She feels destitute because the city is deserted. Everyone has gone. Jerusalem had been and had always been a bustling center of celebration, thronging at certain times with pilgrims, filled with dancing and joy, but there's no one there and everyone has gone and no one is coming. It must be like waking up in many Turkish and Syrian towns and villages today with that terrifying silence. Where is everybody? Where are the noises of the town and the city? Where are the, where are the smells? Where's the hustle and bustle of the market and people and coming and going? Jerusalem, she is grieving a catastrophic loss of community. I guess for us in the UK, it would be like uh, turning up at Wembley uh, for an important game, only to find the stadium is in ruins, there are rats picking over the rubbish. It's the wrong kind of peace. It's the kind of peace that you get when you take everything and everybody away. And so she feels destitute. Secondly, she describes that she feels destitute because she has been violated. The poet's language is bold and is unrelenting. Rape was one of the ugliest weapons of ancient war and has been ever since. But there is a wider, deeper sense that the invading army were an uninvited, catastrophic violation of the whole city with all of the attending sense of shame and disgust and anguish. In verse 10, we hear the enemy laid hands on all her treasures. She saw pagan nations enter her sanctuary. And this crushing sense of violation is only deepened by the mocking of those who've shamed her. They have no shame. In fact, they are multiplying her pain with their mockery, their taunts, with their derision. As invading armies have so often done through history. The Babylonians have crushed the spirits of the people of the city as well as destroying uh, bricks 
and mortar. And all that is left is shame and self-loathing and despair. And then third and most painfully, Jerusalem begins to ponder why this has happened. This is, of course, the perennial question of all suffering that every single person in this building and those watching have asked, why has this happened? Jerusalem has always seen the world and has seen herself primarily through the eyes of faith and through the eyes of faith in Israel's covenant God. And so it's no surprise that some of her immediate thoughts are about God's part in her destitution. If she is destitute, maybe it's God that has made her destitute. In verse 5, we read, The Lord has brought her grief because of her many sins. In verse 8, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. Now, it may well be our first instinct if we sat down at a table with Lady Zion quickly to refute this line of self-recrimination. It's not your fault, we might find ourselves saying. And we will return again and again through this series to exactly that question. So we will, will not solve it uh, today. But we do know that God had repeatedly confronted Jerusalem, particularly through his prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah had warned Jerusalem against her intolerable social injustice, against her religious hypocrisy, against her idolatry, and against her over-reliance on foreign kings at casting her eyes across the Middle East, trying to find other kings that would save her and would do for her what she felt God would never do. And those warnings had come from decades and warnings that this very destruction would come at the hands of a godless tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar. So her guilt, she feels in those first moments, her guilt is real, even if the Babylonians are also, through their wanton destruction and taking of life, equally guilty. And even this early on in Lamentations, she is able to bring to God the way in which the Babylonians have enormously overreached and have caused such destruction and suffering. We've heard then what happened, a terrifying city-wide destruction of people and purpose. We have a city, Jerusalem, left destitute. We've heard what she feels in the aftermath sickened by the violence, violated and mocked, guilty and angry and sensing that the punishment, if that is what this is, does not fit the crime. The image that we hear most often in Lamentations 1 is the image of being comfortless. You can see it there in verse 2. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. And it comes five times in that first chapter. We recognize this, do we not, from our own experience, even if our experience 
is not as violent or as overwhelming as Jerusalem's. Suffering is isolating. Suffering cuts us off. It kind of secludes us from other people and from God. Joy is often the reverse, isn't it? Joy uh, naturally binds us with other people. It's naturally something that is easy to share. And joy is something that is very comfortable to experience and to express around God. Suffering, on the other hand, isolates. And there are two things that we can do about that this morning. First, we need to learn to excel as comforters. And to excel as comforters means that we need to rebuke the selfishness and the fear that is inside each one of us, the selfishness and the fear that resists or keeps at arm's length the needs and the suffering of others. We all experience this. You all know what it's like to know that there is somebody within your circle or somebody within the community who is suffering. And we witness the isolation that that brings and we battle within ourselves as to whether we will reach out or whether we will keep them at arm's length. Godly, compassionate people are comforters. That is part of the joy of being in this church community. Godly, compassionate people recognize hurt and anguish in others. And when we see it, what do we do? We bring comfort. We bring peace. We bring solidarity and understanding. We bring a prayerful and faithful presence to be with those who, in their isolation, may well feel that God has literally deserted them. One of the reasons that the Western church's neglect of lament is such a big deal and is such a loss is precisely because we live in a culture that is framed by anxiety and by a sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness and emptiness. And yet we never express those things here in our church. We have ended up even less honest than the self-deceiving culture that we live in. So we need to learn to excel as comforters, at both within this community, always wanting to avoid the tragedy that uh, somebody here within our community, isolated by suffering, concludes that both the community and God has given up on them or turned away from them. But second, we need to learn from Jerusalem's lonely grief. Right now, in this moment, Lamentations 1, God seems resolutely silent to her pleas. Well, 
Jerusalem is undaunted by that silence. Very easy for us, and maybe all of us have done it at moments, when we feel that God is silent, God is distant, we want to crawl up on a ball and hide. We want to give up. Jerusalem is undaunted by God's silence. She will keep on asking. We're going to hear it over these next few weeks. She will keep on weeping. And she will keep on waiting. Ultimately, because she feels that she has nowhere else to go. In verse 20, we read, See, Lord, how distressed I am. I am in torment within, and my, in, in my heart I am disturbed, for I have been most rebellious. At the first poem's end, she will not take no for an answer. As she finishes the first of these four A to Zs of grief, she is holding out for God's compassion. She's also holding out for God's justice to be more fully realized. I'm determined not to patronize anybody here or anybody listening today or to belittle at the pain that you feel or to tell you that everything's okay. But I can encourage you not to let go of God today. Not to curl up in a ball and give up. Not to conclude that God has sold you out. Seek God. Remind God of his promises. Let your prayers both refine and interrogate your pain. Don't be daunted. God has gifted you these words of grief in Lamentations. Use them and own them and wait to see how God answers them. So let's sit quietly for a few moments and I'll lead us in prayer as we gather up at these words and thoughts and pictures from Lamentations 1. We've heard the wounds that hurt most as Jerusalem staggered from the ruins, loneliness, violated, guilty, confused. We are not competing with Jerusalem today. But as we sit quietly, ask yourself, what are the wounds that you carry with you? particularly the wounds that you have never told to God. Decide on a word or a couple of words that sum those up for you. God, we thank you for these words, the words in Lamentations 
and the words that we have quietly named before you today. We are sorry for hiding these wounds away and keeping them in the dark. We are sorry, God, for our failure to listen to others. Sorry for the people that we have kept at arm's length. As we think of those wounds and those griefs that we carry and the wounds and the griefs of our world, we say to you, please do something, O God. We invite you, we implore you, we remind you of the promises that you have made. Please prepare our hearts for what you want to do. Please help us as a church to lament together. And we are sorry, loving God, for those times when our church community has not welcomed or given space to those who are suffering and afraid and alone. Loving God, we pray that you would help us to listen to the voices of those who are suffering most, those in our own community and in our country and across the world. Lord, please teach us and enable us to excel as comforters. We pray that no one would be uncomforted or left comfortless in this community. Lord, please bind up our wounds. Lord, please lead us to godly repentance as we see the things that we've done wrong, the hurt that we've caused, the things that we've not done. Please lead us to a godly repentance. Please, Lord, encourage us and build us up. Lord, please stand in the way of tyrants and the merciless and the loveless in our world. Please bring justice, bring a righting of wrongs. And Lord, please help us to wait for your grace and for your new beginnings. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.